As I said before, I've allowed you to keep your wicked life for two reasons. And the second reason is so you can tell him in person everything that happened here tonight. I want him to witness the extent of my mercy by witnessing your deformed body. I want you to tell him all the information you just told me. I want him to know what I know. I want him to know. I want him to know. And I want them all to know. They'll all soon be as dead as a red. What you are about to hear is a labor of love. Our love is for the music, and the music is for the people. We at Rockstrex10 and cnjradio.com have always recommended that any music we promote on our shows be legally purchased, downloaded, and or streamed. We feel this way not only for our network of shows, but for all music-based shows. By supporting the artist in this way, more music can be created and the industry as a whole can prosper. The music is owned by their respective labels, or hopefully by the artists themselves. This broadcast is owned by cnjradio.com. Our only mission is to promote the music we love and promote the legal purchase of it. Enjoy the show and turn it up. Welcome to Rock Welcome to Rock Strikes 10, the show guaranteed to always give you 10 songs, no more, no less. My name is Joey. I want to thank everybody for tuning into the show here today, especially if you're doing it at the central station of cnjradio.com. Okay, yes, we are finally here. We're finally at the end of our big, super spectacular retrospective of the year 2003 Finishing off here with the top 10 albums of 2003. And as promised, it's going to be a hell of a show. Let me actually start off by giving out just a couple of awards. This is probably going to become a particularly brutal segment as I get through the 2000s. It didn't start off great as far as me trying to pick out songs that were maybe on the pop charts for each of these years to be like, here, here's some pop songs that were popular that I liked in said year. It's tough field this year. Honestly, I think I've referenced or played the main things that I did like that was popular with the rest of the general public, or at least uh, I played stuff off of those particular albums, like the fact that seven nation army was a big hit. Stacy's mom, I talked about Outcast earlier during the odds and ends. So yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Don't really have much to speak of. It, it, it's it's getting pretty bad. They're not making stuff that I really dig at this point uh, for mass consumption. So this is really one of the first years that I learned as a guy in his mid-20s, but already an old man apparently, that if I was going to remain a fan of rock music, hard rock, heavy metal, punk rock, what have you. If I was going to be a fan of that music, I would have to now not only be a musicologist, but I would have to become an archaeologist as well. 
And that's what I did, and that's what this top 10 is going to be all about, basically. So before we get to number 10, one last part as far as our 2003 wrap-up. The worst album of the year. This is a layup. This is the easiest tip-in of all time. I might as well change the name of this award to the name of this record. But yes, the worst album of the year. It's got to be St. Anger, right? That's on principle. It's got to be that. Which, yeah, that's almost too easy. So I'll give you a couple of runners-up. Two that I turned off a lot sooner than I expected that were really, really bad were two solo albums by two different types of singers of bands that I hold in in very high regard, actually. So I will go ahead and give some dishonorable mentions to Brett Michaels, which is no surprise. I don't even remember the name of that record, Songs About Life or something like that. It's awful. Whatever he put out in 2003 is fucking terrible. Ricky Rocket, at least, had the decency to put out a cheaply produced all-covers album of glam songs, and that was infinitely better than what his singer put out in 2003. Also, I'll give another dishonorable mention to Neil Turbin the first official singer of Anthrax, his solo album in 2003 is really terrible as well. So avoid those at all costs. So the St. Anger Award goes to them as well. But of course, St. Anger is at the top of that field on a lot of principles. But let's get back into the positivity. And I do those worst awards. I'm going to try to do those during the top 10 because it's just going to be a kiss-ass fest for the rest of the show. All the positivity, all the fun. So speaking of fun, right here at number 10, an upper echelon album in this guy's solo canon. One of my all-time faves, if not my all-time fave, Mr. Alice Cooper had a very huge creative comeback in 2003. Uh, let's be honest, Dragon Town was a little brutal. I actually like Brutal Planet, no pun intended, by the way, at that previous statement. Uh, but Dragon Town's kind of a creative low for Alice. So I was as equally glad as probably Alice was in 2003 that Garage Rock was making the scene again. Actually, it had been back for a few years, but Alice finally took notice of it here in 2003. But good for him. Got one of the best bands ever assembled post-original band around him here in 2003. Check this out. His two guitar players at the time are, of course, Ryan Roxy. And this is really Ryan's first full-time record with Alice. I think he does have a little bit of playing credit on those previous two albums, but this is the one where he plays on the whole record. And he's the predominant co-songwriter of the entire record as well, which is very important because Ryan's a good writer for Alice. And the other guitar player, freaking Eric Dover, who was at the tail end of Jellyfish, of their run, but also one of my favorite one-and-done bands of all time, Imperial Drag. He's from that band as well. And then later on, Licorice Quartet. But yeah, huge talent there, Eric Dover. So he's on board for this record and also co-writes the whole album with Alice and Ryan. And rounding out in the rhythm section, you got Chuck Garrick making his first album appearance, I believe, with Alice, who's still with him. And on drums is Eric Singer. So you got a real stellar lineup here. And they really do deliver here on the eyes of Alice Cooper. Mostly garage rock in spirit and a nice stripped-down approach as far as the production value goes. Everything that those last two albums weren't. 
You got Mudrock on the board, who mostly known for being a producer of bad new metal bands or bands like Godsmack and Avenged Sevenfold, but he's done a couple of good records. I think he did a couple of Riverboat Gamblers records. So, like I said, this is an upper echelon solo Alice record, which I do recommend. Now, as far as the distance from when it came out and 20 years later, for me as a listener and as a fan... I could probably honestly do without the first two songs and the last two songs, but the first two songs are better than the last two songs. But everything between that is solid, solid stuff for me. Some of my all-time favorite Alice songs are on this record. And I actually had a handful of songs to represent this album, so I went with, okay, wherever it lands on the countdown is what I'm going to go with. So since we're opening the show up here, I'm going to go with the best possible opener that I chose out of the short list. So, to represent our number 10 album here, The Eyes of Alice Cooper, this is Alice Cooper, and this song right here, a real fun, punky-type song called Man of the Year. Turn it up. I wake up every morning, 6 o'clock, I'm right on time.
kicking off the show today and getting us into the top 10 here of the top 50 albums of 2003. That was my man right there, the man of the year, Alice Cooper, from the eyes of Alice Cooper. Hope you enjoyed that. You can actually find some footage of that band playing that song. I think it's on the Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn, and they're playing Man of the Year. And I think they shot another song at that point, which wound up on another episode of the show. They did one of the old classics, but yeah, Man of the Year, it exists out there. Go look it up. I think that same lineup played at the Live at Montro live show as well, which is really cool. If you've got the Pluto app, you can watch that Live at Montro concert for free. A lot of plugs there, but I'm an Alice guy, so I know where to find all this stuff. I've got a physical of that, of course, but if you're a minimalist but you still love your music, then you can find it on there. There's actually a handful of full Alice shows on the Pluto app, so go forth. Okay, coming in at number nine here, the aforementioned Riverboat Gamblers, the greatest band to come out of Denton, Texas, just about 20, 30 minutes from my house. They reside in Austin, Texas now, but I remember around this time, a co-worker of mine, Sean Leesman, the Rev, he was like, you got to check this band out. They're great. And I'm sure he had already seen them multiple times in the clubs because he's that guy. But I'm really glad that he brought them up because the next time I saw one of their CDs, I picked it up and love it first listen. Riverboat Gambler is one of the great rock and roll bands that come out of the last 20 years. And coming in at number nine here, every band on here is fucking awesome because they beat out Alice. So this is already a great show and make an absolute point to go see them live. I know I've said this before. One of the great live rock and roll bands on the planet right now. They really bring it, and they just have that thing. They can get the crowd to go crazy. It's an X factor that a lot of performers don't really have, but they have it. So, yeah, go see them at all costs. So in 2003, they're working their sophomore album called Something to Crow About. And it's just a little under half an hour. Just barely made the cut as far as what I consider to be a full length. It made it on here. But it's a punk rock record. It's a garage rock record. So it's not going to be too terribly long. It definitely doesn't wear out its welcome, that's for sure. And it's a near-perfect record. So that's why it's in here at number nine. I could have played anything off of it. Much like they are when they're live, this album does not stop. But here is my personal favorite song off the record. So, from Something to Crow About, this is the Riverboat Gamblers and Cut, 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 Cut.
Coming in at number nine here on our best albums, the 2003 countdown. That was the Riverboat Gamblers. The album is Something to Crow About, and that was Cut, 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 Cut. Pure rock right there. Pure rock, power, and we're sticking with that kind of attitude and approach throughout this entire top ten. Not letting up here with number eight. This is a band where the albums change, but the album title always remains the same. They were having their self-titled debut here in 2003. Great band out of Los Angeles. The Bronx. You cannot go wrong with the Bronx. They have, what, six, seven records out at this point. Not a bad album at all. No weak album. They are just fucking great. So get all their records if you don't have them already. I I don't know how you don't at this point. But... First one, you can't miss it. One of the great album covers as well of the last 20 years. You got the the mouth open with the fangs sticking out and the blood dripping down the lip, and it spells out the Bronx. How fucking cool is that? that that's one of those things you see it, and you're like, I got to hear this record. It, that's what a great album cover can do. Fun fact about this record. I remember when I picked this up, I was immediately like, oh, wow, that's cool. This album was produced by Gilby Clark. Yes, that Gilby Clark, the one you know from Guns N' Roses, good solo career, a lot of good rock albums in his canon, great live, much like the Gamblers, much like every band on this top 10. <laughs> There's no Park and Bark bands here in the top 10. So these are kind of easy episodes to do in a sense, although I don't know how much I can really go into massive detail about it, but I'll, I'll do my best. I, I really just want the music to do the talk, and I just want you to have a good time listening to the show. So let's just get back into the music here and not let up. This is the Bronx from the Bronx, and this is Cobra Lucha. Say it words, so maybe forget until I can't say this is desperate. I love it when I'm telling myself lies.
number eight on our countdown belongs to the Bronx, and that was Cobra Lucha from their album called The Bronx, just like all their albums called The Bronx. So if you see a record on the shelf or a CD on the shelf and it says The Bronx on it, no matter what the font is or what, just get it because it's going to be great. You can't go wrong. This is the one that has the mouth open with the fangs and the blood dripping from below the lip. That's this one. Okay. Number seven right here, a band that always does really well on any of my countdowns. And yeah, man, almost on principle, we got to have some Sweden representation here in the countdown, especially in the top 10, because they, they know how to do it. And this band right here, Hardcore Superstar, so damn consistent. They're 12 albums into their career, and they're still running things for me as a, as a fan. I just love listening to their records. As my buddy LC from Cobras and Fire likes to say, I will use this phrase to describe Hardcore Superstar. They are a mood enhancer. And this album right here from 2003, No Regrets, their fourth full-length album, just like any of the other ones, they rock real hard. They're super fun. They're always super catchy. And these guys can play, man. They check off all the boxes. And, and this one, I hadn't really listened to a whole bunch. I did not have it physically. That will change because I always make a point to make sure I'm buying these as well. Uh, initially, I just had to go pull this one up on YouTube. How shameful is that? They do have stuff on Spotify and some other places, but... No Regrets is not on those particular services. So even going through the arduous process of having to find the full album here on YouTube, it still gets the job done. I don't recommend it really, but if it's between listening to the album and not listening to the album, do what you got to do. You will not regret it. Uh, yeah, okay, Let, let's just get back into the music here. I'm going to do something completely insane. I'm going to play like the fourth or fifth best song on this record just to prove a point, okay? And, and that being said, it's a great song. There's actually a band that I think would do a great job covering this song, and I, I do need to private message that band on social media, and I think they'll actually respond. So let's see if I can make this happen. I'm going to get this song out of obscurity because it is really fun. So from No Regrets, this is Hardcore Superstar with The Last Great Day. Enjoy.
number seven album right there, Hardcore Superstar and No Regrets. So damn good. I'm not even kidding. That's probably the fourth or fifth best song on the record. That's how good this record is. So yeah, what? I'm throwing the card down. Let's go ahead and stay in Sweden for number six right here. This one should come as no surprise either for longtime friends of the show. Span right here, Backyard Babies. They have their fourth full-length album out, much like Hardcore Superstar right there, the fourth record. Theirs is called Stockholm Syndrome. And here's a fun fact. The album was produced by a guy named Joe Barisi, who also produced an album earlier in this countdown, the second Tomahawk record, Mick Gas. Guy's got some crazy credits under his name, and I know I've mentioned him before. He produced a handful of Melvin's records, stuff for Queens of the Stone Age, He's a triple threat, produces, mixes, and engineers. But yeah, great ear on this guy, Joe Barisi. Even did some Paul Bear records, and that's awesome because those albums have just such a full, great, huge sound. But yes, also a great sound here for the Backyard Babies and their album Stockholm Syndrome here in 2003. And it's just a joy to put on a Backyard Babies record because they're so consistent. I always know what I'm getting into. They never let me down. This song right here, and I wasn't very familiar with Stockholm Syndrome prior to just a couple of years ago, but I ran into this song listening to a retrospective of theirs. And I played this, I think, during the odds and ends of 2005 because it wound up on their best of. And it's such a great song. It's really become one of my favorite songs of all time. So I could not play it here in case you missed it a couple of years ago. You're going to hear it here now. So to represent Stockholm Syndrome by the Backyard Babies, this one's called Minus Celsius.
All right, yes. I'm so jealous of that opening riff. That's just too good. But that entire arrangement is real next level. Minus Celsius right there. Maybe the best song ever by the Backyard Babies, but check out that whole record. Check out their entire catalog. I know I've said that about everybody on this episode, but it's freaking true. So go forth. Okay, yes. So I don't know about you, but I need a little bit of a break because these records have been so good. I need just a little bit of a break here. And I've been hitting you over the head pretty much with just some quality, high energy type rock and roll. So as luck would have it, we are at the halfway point of this show. And before we get into the top five, it's time for a little tradition we have now in these countdowns. It's now time for the halftime show. So now I'm going to send it over to my brother, my best friend in the whole world, the C of C&J Radio, sending you over to Chris, and he's got a list for you here. And yes, it is Chris's favorite movies of 2003. Listen to this dude, Chris. He knows what he's talking about. So without any other further ado, take it away, Chris. Thank you, Joey, and welcome, everyone, to the movie portion of the top 50 albums of 2003 on Rock Strikes 10. My name is Chris, and you've probably heard me on these countdowns before, or maybe you know me from the Wrestling House Show or The Last Theater, both of which are on cnjradio.com. Or maybe you've read my work on creepycatalog.com, which would be great, because that's my day job. But if you don't know who I am, well, I'm a guy who likes movies, and I see a lot of them. Now, thinking back to 2003, this was a period in my life when I was really trying to watch absolutely everything. My interests were expanding greatly in film, and they had been for a few years by this point, and I think that is reflected pretty well in my favorite movies of 2003. There is, of course, still a lot of horror on this list as usual, but I think this list does have a little more variety, which just shows that I was watching a lot of different types of movies, and they were all having a big impact on me. Now, when I talk about 2003 movies, I do want to make it clear, once again, that I am including any movie getting a wide release in the United States during 2003. So, some of the foreign movies in this list were originally released earlier, but they didn't get their first official wide release in the U.S. until sometime in 2003. Okay, so when I make these lists, I'll usually look through all the movies released during the year, and I'll make a short list of every movie that I'd be more than happy to say was one of my favorites of the year. This time, my short list was about 30 movies long, and I had a really tough time cutting it down to just 10. But the assignment was 10 because this is Rock Strikes 10, and I want to do a good job, but I also want to do a rapid-fire mention of some of the contenders that were still on the final, final short list before the final, final list of 10. So these are the movies that didn't quite make the cut for various reasons, but were almost on there, and here we go. Gus Van Zandt's Elephant, Wrong Turn, The Last Samurai, The Princess Blade, Ichi the Killer, Full Time Killer, Bubba Hotep, So Close, Millennium Mambo, and one of my absolute favorite awful movies, House of the Dead. Yes, the Uwe Boll video game adaptation, House of the Dead. It is terrible, and that's why it's not in my top ten. But I do unironically love it because of how stupid it is. Everything else I've seen by Uwe Boll, I think, is boring, and I do own some of them because I'm insane about collecting DVDs and physical media, but I've only watched them, like, once, and I'll maybe try once every few years and I get bored by them, but with House of the Dead, I've seen it more times than I care to mention, 
but it is not on my list of top 10 movies, so let's get to the actual list right now. My 10th favorite movie released in 2003 is Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation. It's the movie where Bill Murray is a fading actor who goes to Japan and does a lot of commercials and is kind of sad and lonely. And Scarlett Johansson, who is the wife of a photographer who is also in Japan and is bored and lonely. And they have this very interesting relationship. And what I love about this movie is the ambiguous nature of the relationship between Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson's characters. I love the dry humor. I love how melancholy the movie feels. And of course, I love the setting in Tokyo. I often thought about Lost in Translation when I went to live in Tokyo for a couple years. Even though that was about a decade after I'd first seen the movie, I was still constantly reminded about some of the moments from Lost in Translation whenever I'd walk through the city. And watching Lost in Translation now, I get a little wistful about those times. So to me, that's the mark of a great movie is that it does impact me in that way to where I took it with me when I went to Japan. And now when I watch it, it takes me back to Japan. And it's just a good movie in general. But next up is a movie that I thankfully don't have any personal connections to. Rather, it's a movie that is disturbing and devastating in a way that impacted me greatly when I first saw it. And it's still so effective now that I've only seen it a couple of times. But that effectiveness is exactly why it's my ninth favorite movie of 2003. The movie is irreversible. It is a French revenge movie told in reverse chronological order. So if you've seen Christopher Nolan's Memento, then its structure is similar to that. We see an act of brutality at the beginning of Irreversible, but without context, we don't really know what to think about it. It just is. Then we move back in time to see the minutes leading up to what we just saw. That process repeats over and over until we make it back to well before the inciting incident that prompted the act of revenge that we saw at the beginning. The reverse order format is brilliant, in my opinion, because it puts the focus of the movie on the victim rather than on the revenge and the person acting out the revenge. Our perceptions of good and bad and right and wrong shift as we learn more, and instead of being like this rah-rah kill movie about revenge, it's an incredibly heartbreaking movie about the inescapable fate of an innocent victim. Plus, the director, Gaspar Noé, uses various techniques to disorient the viewer. Lots of flashing lights, lots of fluid, disorienting camera movements, which makes the movie almost hypnotic. Irreversible is amazing, but it's a movie I never recommend to anyone. I've purposely avoided talking about the act that led to the revenge, mostly because I don't want to get Joey's podcast flagged for inappropriate content. So it's bad, and that scene in the middle of the movie is brutal, and I don't recommend anyone watch it if you're interested in knowing more about Irreversible, you can look it up, or yeah, contact me and I'll tell you about it. But moving on to happier things, next up is a movie about a blind woman getting her sight back, and then seeing ghosts. My eighth favorite movie of 2003 is The Eye. I'm talking about the original The Eye, the one from Hong Kong and not the remake with Jessica Alba, which I've still never watched. This is The Eye directed by the Pang Brothers. It's a ghost movie and the plot does play out in a fairly standard way that you might expect for a ghost movie from the early 2000s. But I really like the premise of someone seeing ghosts, but not really understanding right away 
that what she's seeing is something supernatural because she hasn't seen since she was like five years old, I believe, if I remember correctly. Also, a few of the scares in the first half of the movie are some of my favorite creepy moments in any horror movie. There's a scene in a hospital hallway that spooks me every time I see it. It's a combination of the directing and the sound, and it's just really, really well done. The second half of the eye isn't great, in my opinion, but the first half of the movie more than makes up for any shortcomings I see in the second half. The trend of the first part of the movie being better than the last part continues in my next pick. My seventh favorite movie of 2003 is House of a Thousand Corpses. Now let me explain what I mean by that. I think House of a Thousand Corpses is great from beginning to end, but I do enjoy everything before the final act way more than the final act. If you've never seen it, House of a Thousand Corpses is Rob Zombie's homage to movies like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that's what the first two-thirds of the movie more or less feel like. It's violent and funny, and I love it. When the movie goes underground to Dr. Satan's lair, it basically becomes a haunted house attraction, which, if you know the history, Rob Zombie actually came up with the idea for House of a Thousand Corpses while he was designing a haunted house attraction for Universal's Halloween Horror Nights, so it all makes sense. But I don't love that part as much as the rest of the movie. But I still like it, and it's still good enough to be number seven on my list. But moving on to something completely different, my sixth favorite movie of 2003 is the Brazilian film City of God. I haven't seen this movie in a very long time, but it is fantastic. There are certain movies out there like this that I think are amazing, but I don't necessarily feel the need to revisit them very often. There Will Be Blood is one of those movies, so is American History X, and I think maybe it's because I had such an amazing and moving experience with these the first time that I'm afraid that seeing them again might not be as enthralling. But I really should watch City of God again. It's a drama about two kids growing up in the slums of Rio de Janeiro who end up going down very different paths in their lives. It's emotional, it's exciting, it's a crime movie, it's a drama, and I love it. Next I'm going back to American Horror by way of Hong Kong. My fifth favorite movie from 2003 is Freddy vs. Jason, directed by Hong Kong filmmaker Ronnie Yu. Joey and I talked a lot about Freddy vs. Jason in two separate episodes of The Last Theater because it's a movie that belongs to two iconic horror franchises and because it ranks pretty highly in both series. It's super fun, and the Hong Kong sensibilities of Ronnie Yu really make it stand out in the best possible way. It's pure popcorn horror, and I can watch it over and over again and never get tired of it. My fourth favorite movie of 2003 is something that was definitely the best the first time I saw it, but it's still really good on multiple viewings. My fourth favorite movie of 2003 is Identity. This is a psychological thriller disguised as a dark murder mystery. A bunch of great people star in it. It's an ensemble cast led by John Cusack, Ray Liotta, and Amanda Peet. And it's about a bunch of people who are stranded at a motel during a storm. Someone dies, and then more people die, and the dwindling survivors try to find out who the killer among them is before they all end up dead. I don't want to say too much about the mystery if you haven't seen Identity, but it's cleverly done and very satisfying. And even when you know exactly what is happening when you've seen it once and watch it again, 
it's still fun to watch since the plot is so well constructed and now you get to view everything from a different perspective. I watched this again not too long ago after the sad passing of Ray Liotta and it still holds up to this day. I think it's still a fabulous movie and yeah, I revisit it pretty often. And speaking of movies with interesting perspectives, my third favorite movie of 2003 is Millennium Actress. This is an anime movie from Satoshi Kon, the man who made my absolute favorite anime movie of all time, Perfect Blue. Millennium Actress is very different from Perfect Blue though. This is a drama about the life of a retired actress named Chiyoko who became reclusive after she left acting. Millennium Actress begins with a TV reporter being granted an interview with Chiyoko and what we watch is her subjective retelling of her life from when she was a child to the end of her acting career. Chiyoko is elderly and in poor health and as she tells her story the movies that she was in that she acted in overlap with her real life stories. So what we hear and see is a mixture of what really happened to her and the roles that she played in various films. So one minute she's in early 1900s Japan and the next she's in a version of Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood or she's standing among the devastation of World War II or maybe she's in a spaceship about to blast off and it's all one continuous dreamlike story. Millennium Actress is a beautiful movie both visually and emotionally, and I think everyone should see it. Now, these final two movies on my list did give me a bit of trouble. They're nothing alike, but I like them both very much for very different reasons, so I had a difficult time choosing one over the other. I did rewatch both of these before I finalized this list, and I am happy with the results. So, my second favorite movie of 2003 is 28 Days Later. I think most people listening to this at least know about 28 Days Later, but for those who don't, this is Danny Boyle's zombie movie set in England. I know there has been some debate over the years as to whether 28 Days Later is truly a zombie movie, and I was even among the ones who questioned it, but it is a zombie movie. It's a brilliant zombie movie that feels dark and gritty and as realistic as any zombie movie you're ever likely to see. It's about a virus that devastates Great Britain and causes people to go into a furious rage and attack people who are not yet infected. It's scary, it's haunting, it's sad, and it's hopeful sometimes all at the same time. And I particularly like how it's mostly shot on digital video that doesn't have very great quality, so it feels even more real and it gives it a low-budget kind of aesthetic and appeal. 28 Days Later is just about a perfect movie. But something that might be even more perfect is my favorite movie of 2003, and that movie is Kill Bill Volume 1. I'd gotten into kung fu movies in a big way in the 90s, and I've loved all things Japanese ever since I can remember, and I was already a big fan of Quentin Tarantino by the time Kill Bill came out, so this was perfect. And the best thing is, as much as I loved Kill Bill when I first saw it, I've come to appreciate it even more in the decades since then as I continue to watch Shaw Brothers movies, Sonny Chiba movies, Gordon Liu movies, Chiaki Kuriyama movies, and as I sought out just about every movie that Quentin Tarantino references within Kill Bill. Like maybe most obviously Lady Snowblood. Some of the movies that I found through Kill Bill have become some of my other favorite movies. Kill Bill is perfectly paced, the action is over the top and exactly what it intends to be, and the almost surreal, stylized reality of the movie is so much fun to watch. 
The showdown at the House of Blue Leaves is so, so good. And the beginning of it, when Oren Ishii is walking down the hallway, flanked by Gogo, Sophie, and some of the Crazy 88, for me, is easily one of the most iconic scenes in film history. I'm still holding on to hope for Kill Bill Volume 3. Yes, even though Tarantino has said that he's going to retire after his 10th movie, which will be his next one, but maybe even if he doesn't direct it, maybe he could just write it and then handpick a director, passing it on to the next generation of filmmakers, like the cycle of revenge within the Kill Bill movies would get passed on to the bride's daughter and to Vernita Green's daughter and the next generation and the next generation. It would be, once again, perfect. But I think I've taken up enough of everyone's time, so that will do it for now. I think my 2003 top 10 might be my most well-rounded top 10 yet, but what do you all think? And Joey, what about you? I imagine there is some overlap in our lists because I've heard at least one of the movies in this list in the intros to this top 50 of 2003 countdown on Rock Strikes 10. So, as usual, I will end this segment by asking you, Joey, what are a few of your favorite movies from 2003? And for everyone else listening, thank you if you didn't skip this non-music segment and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, thanks for that, Chris. Chris always delivering the celluloid goods right there. And yeah, there were some overlap, much like some of these other lists. I think we've done a few where we're like 50-50. We definitely matched on 28 Days Later, House of Thousand Corpses, Freddy vs. Jason, Lost in Translation, and of course, Kill Bill, also my favorite movie of the year. Definitely Kill Bill by a mile. And I actually went and saw that with Chris on opening night. It was great stuff just to have that experience and everybody was down for this movie. But yeah, I'll do a couple of also rands, some personal faves, some fun stuff, stuff that wasn't mentioned. You've heard intros on these episodes, one for Love Actually, which I don't hate that movie, despite the fact that it's a supposed chick flick, quote unquote, and I kind of hate that term. But I like half of that movie really well. Some of the stories I don't dig, but some of them I do. And of course, who doesn't love Bill Nighy? That guy steals the damn show, because of course he does. And even something stupid and fun like The Rundown. I don't know if it's in my top 10 of 2003, but I just, once again, recently watched it again. Had a lot of fun with it. Aged pretty well. Talked about School of Rock. That's probably my second or third favorite movie of the entire year. School of Rock is great, and it's got a great heart. And even if you have misgivings about Jack Black, you should give into this film and just enjoy it. And I think anybody with half a heart will. Another absolute fun favorite, and I referenced it in one of the intros as well, is Bad Santa. Bad Santa, one of the great dark comedies of all time, dealing with Billy Bob Thornton as a drunk-ass, drug-addicted mall Santa who's terrible at it and somehow always gets work every year. And there's some crime to it, but also it's just the hard rated R jokes throughout. And I believe the last cinematic appearance of John Ritter. Can't go wrong with that. So yeah, Bad Santa if you hadn't seen it and you need to have a goddamn sense of humor about it. I guess the biggest big movie that that Chris didn't mention that I actually thought would be on his list, but Chris goes hard and I'm sure it's somewhere on his short list for sure. The 30 or 40 he mentioned that was on his short list. I'm assuming Return of the King, Lord of the Rings Return of the King would be on there because just on principle that the director of Dead Alive, Peter Jackson won a goddamn Oscar, or at least a handful of them, including Best Picture for Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, and probably just honestly for his work with that whole trilogy. 
Definitely worth mentioning, I would think. Yes, okay. Uh, hey, I can go art house just like the next guy. I'm not as great at it as a lot of people, but I will say, I was looking over some of the rest of these movies, some of the ones that have a bit of depth to them. One that I think people have slept on over the years that's also really good is one of the least talked about Tim Burton films, and that's Big Fish with Ewan McGregor and the star lead there and a nice cast. Once again, like School of Rock, it's got a good heart to it. And a fun fact, it's one of the few films that has made me cry. And my true art house pick for 2003, which in light of Paul Giamatti winning his third Golden Globe the other day, and I fucking love Paul Giamatti. I'm so happy he won again. And I need to see a lot more of his stuff because I'm a fan. But in 2003, his indie film that he did, American Splendor, is a biopic based on the life of cartoonist, comic book artist, however you want to call it, Harvey Pekar. Him in that role, just great. So American Splendor is definitely my art house pick of 03. So go see all the stuff that Chris recommended first, and then if you have time, watch some of my bullshit. So yeah, you ready to get into the top five here? And this top five is going to be great. Some of my all-time favorite records coming up right here. Getting us into the top five. Staying with sort of the same area on the map and moving over just slightly to Norway for this one right here. I thought that this band actually originated from Scandinavia. Why? Because the album in question here that I'm about to talk about is called Scandinavian Leather. It's by Turbo Negro here. And I hope I don't get stripped of my membership of Turbo Jungen, uh, Dallas chapter, by the way, officially. I hope I don't get stripped of that by putting them at number five here, because this is a very, very solid field here in the top ten. I remember getting a hold of this record, and literally, much like the Bronx album, listening to it because of the album cover. I'm like, well, that looks cool. Let's check it out. I was expecting a death metal record, and during the intro, I still wasn't sure what I was going to get. Until Wife Until It Bleeds came on. I was like, oh, okay, here we go. And it was this fun, trashy, punk garage, a little bit of metal influence. You know, all the fun stuff that I like was on this record. So I immediately fell in love with this band. I had to go get everything by him after this. Went backwards, you know, Darkness Forever and Ask Cobra and all those records. Just so fun. Band I can really get behind because clearly they don't take themselves too seriously. But they are dead serious about their music clearly because the arrangements on this are way too classy for a band that acts like this you would think but i i, I think it works so i even like on a handful of songs on this record i remember going this is like the trashiest album that bob ezrin could have ever produced even though he didn't produce it a guy named nut schreiner produced it so yeah i don't know i have never heard of him but great name just uh, you, you'll see what i mean playing this song right here this is the one i thought of when i made that statement so this has always been my favorite song on the record on an album full of excellent songs but halfway through the record we get this one right here so enjoy this is fuck the world
That one goes out to a great front man and excellent rock and roll star who is no longer with us, Hank Von Hell, Hank Von Helvete, however you want to say it. We miss you, dude. So, yeah, that was Turbo Negro with Fuck the World from Scandinavian Leather. You got, like, a piano going on. You got strings amidst all of that. It's craziness. Love that so much. Really, really great. Okay, we are in the top five with that record. And number four right here is, of course, a huge favorite. Another massively consistent artist. And he's one of us, a fellow podcaster. Yes, Mr. Danko Jones. His second album here in 2003 it's hard to say, like, Born a Lion versus We Sweat Blood. I mean, who could pick? They're both so damn good. Really just to find the odds that his second album is on par with his debut album. Some would say better. This was the first Denko Jones album that I ever bought. I, much like these other albums, I, I recognize the name. I, it's like I've, I've been hearing this name over the last few years in print and on boards and stuff like that. And I just never went and listened to them. We're still in a pre-Spotify, pre-YouTube music kind of world. And so I just never did that kind of preview jam for them. Man, once I finally got a hold of a CD of We Sweat Blood here by Danko Jones, I was just like, oh my God, this is one of those bands I've just been waiting for. It's just perfect rock and roll to my ears. And I got to say, the U.S. release, the the re-release of We Sweat Blood, the track listing is different than it is on the original album release. What I went ahead and did was grade it with the original track listing and not the U.S. one that I have. Because when I got it, like the second song on the album is Lover Call, and that's on Born a Lion. So it just seemed weird to do it that way since I've already reviewed Born a Lion on the show. It didn't really matter at the end of the day in a sense because it still scored 100 points no matter what you did with it. But I have integrity, so I just wanted to bring that up. But yeah, cannot go wrong with this album. Get all Danko Jones. I'd say go in order. And then when you get to the second album, you'll get to We Sweat Blood and you'll be like, oh yeah. And I'm going to go ahead and play this one right here. I'm still very bitter about the fact that Danko did not have his breakthrough moment in the States finally. And he was long overdue. I was really hoping that because of this song's inclusion in a very spotlighted segment in the movie Kick-Ass 2, I, I thought it was going to be it for him. Unfortunately, it was not, which really sucks, but I still love the song, so I'm going to play it as I would be on the radio hypothetically and like, this is a single and this should be played. So I'm doing it here on Rock Strikes 10. So to represent We Sweat Blood coming at number four here on the countdown, this is once again the great Danko Jones and Dance. Jealous, all the guys want more. 
Album number four right there, the second album by Denko Jones, We Sweat Blood, and that was Dance. I would say that song is as much fun as Rat's song called Dance, and that's high praise coming from me. So yeah, hope you enjoyed that. How, how could you not? Uh, keep the volume turned up for the rest of this show. I, I, I was just going to say turn it up before each song, but you, you should have it already cranked up here. So album number three, much like everybody on this top 10 these are all pretty much usual suspects this band being no exception right here number three belongs to the wild hearts and their album the wild hearts must be destroyed this was my first i think full-fledged year of wild hearts fandom so i've got a special place in my heart for this album for sure i know i came in with the riff after riff compilation and then this came out like almost right after i got that so Great timing, and this album is a perfect album. Another 100-pointer. By the way, been pulling perfect 100 scores since the Hardcore Superstar record at number 7, just just in case you were curious. 
the top seven on this countdown all scored 100 points. So yes, Wild Hearts here with Wild Hearts Must Be Destroyed. After the Endless Nameless album, their fourth album in the late 90s, uh, a lot of criticism about the mix and everything. And I'm one of them, honestly. I, I wish it did not sound that way. Would love to have a remix of that down the road. But I guess they listened to the fans because the 2003 semi-reunion album here, Wild Arts Must Be Destroyed, turning in a very slick, overproduced, clean-sounding record, but also still somehow maintaining the raw edge uh, that we know them to have. It's crazy how they can balance that out on this record. And I know it sounds like an impossible feat, but when you listen to this record, you're going to be like, yeah, they, they totally pull it off. Because they're one of the most perfect rock bands of all time. So on this album, you would think they could seemingly do no wrong. So get on it. I always say this. Get into the Wild Hearts and get into the entirety of their family tree. There is so much great music to be had, even if you just go with the solo projects of all the members. So yeah, it's truly something. Some of the most rewarding listening experiences of my musical fandom. So yes... Could have easily played anything off of this record, but let's go with this one right here. This song is called So Into You. I like your big decisions, but I love the way you change your mind. I like your strength of vision, but I love the way the love is blind. I like that you got bigger balls and almost all the special forces.
Yes, Wild Hearts right there from their Wild Hearts Must Be Destroyed album, and that was so into you. Pure flight and pure perfection right there. So, what could possibly be the top two records? They have to be amazing records to beat all of that, at least today in my mind and in my opinion. This one right here, some of you out there may not have ever even heard of this band or this record, but this is a perfect record. This band only has two records out as of this recording. I hope, I hope, if I was ever to pray, I, I would do that in hopes of getting a reunion of this band to put out more records and a tour so I could see them live. I remember specifically within the frame of a couple of days I saw this band play on Letterman, and I heard them like on like the cable radio. You remember that, like Music Choice and that kind of stuff. Heard them on there. Heard this song twice within a couple of days, and I was like, "Wow, this is one of the greatest rock and roll songs I have ever heard." The album's gotta be good, or at least halfway decent. I would buy it just to have this song, and that's the way it should be. Next day, I special ordered it at the store, came in a few days, put it on, and to this day, I haven't stopped listening to it. It's a perfect rock album, and it really just checks off all the boxes of like great classic punk poetry type stuff, like the really cool side of punk for me. Yeah, some of the oi stuff's all right, but... To me, it's like that cool New York City kind of thing. And thankfully, this band does come from New York City. But yeah, just that Stiv Bader's, Johnny Thunders kind of thing. That ultra cool factor that you can't buy and you can't fake it. Yeah, this album sounds like if Johnny Thunders and Stiff Baders sat around all night listening to Cheap Trick Records or something like that. Uh, yeah, maybe I'm failing at describing this album, but... You just got to get it by any means necessary. So the band is called The Star Spangles and the album is called Bazooka. So, of course, I'm going to play the song that I just referenced, the one that got me on it, because I would not be doing my job properly if I didn't play the song that broke them for me. And once you hear this, I can't imagine you're not going to go, wow, that's one of the greatest rock songs I've ever heard in my life. I need to listen to this record. So that's what it should be doing here. Let me know. So, from Bazooka, this is the Star Spangles with Which of the Two of Us is Gonna Burn This House Down? Yeah. 
to put together like an all-time top 10 songs episode that song would probably be in there and that album's really high up in my all-time desert island list but yes star spangles the album is bazooka and that was which of the two of us is going to burn this house down a lot of replacements influence in there as well i probably should have put that in the mix if uh, Stiv and Johnny are listening to cheap trick they're definitely also listening to the replacements and they're writing songs that sound like that and it becomes this album somehow in light of the fact that there's no Ramones actively at this point in the early 2000s. I really had high hopes for the Star Spangles to be the next one of those bands. I I didn't think that in this climate that they were going to be the next Rolling Stones or anything. I mean, that would have been great but I was at least hoping that they would be the next Ramones or replacements or something like that. Like the next big cult band that would consistently play and tour, even if they were never like millionaires, but man, they deserved some form of success. It's a damn shame. And it's a massive exposure about how unfair the masses are in major labels and all of them, radio stations, they're all to blame. And I don't know if there was any personal faults within the Star Spangles, but I will say the entire industry and people are to blame for giving me only two Star Spangles albums so far in this lifetime, because there should be more. Okay, number one right here. This is where I kind of say, I'm going to pull the asterisk and say number two and number one are kind of tied for the number one album of the year for me. And I'm being dead honest and I don't like to separate too much. I don't like to do the genre separation all that much. But number two and number one are so different that I feel like I can get away with pulling the tie and copping out a little bit. But I will say, as of today, this is how I ranked them in this specific order. And this entire top ten has been very much rock a rolla rock, rock, rock and roll type stuff. Number one definitely gets the nod of being my favorite metal album of the entire year and one of my favorite metal albums of all time. It's so good. It's a 100-pointer for sure. And this band has a few of them, but this is definitely in my upper echelon. And, yeah, I've already talked about this band on the last countdown. They were a part of the 1993 countdown. They didn't quite get to number one on that particular countdown. I know some people might have been upset about that, Scott Crouch. But right here, we're going to make it up. Number one belongs to Anthrax and their last full-length album with the great John Bush. And the album is called We've Come For You All. 
It is a scorcher, man. Saw this tour in a in a venue that I had never been to ever and hadn't been back since. I, I'm almost convinced that I dreamt this or something somehow, but I don't even remember the name of the venue. It was over by where the old Arcadia Theater was in Dallas. It was some weird underground rock club slash sports bar or something. And I saw Anthrax on the We've Come For You All tour supporting this album and very much if you want to replicate what i saw go watch the music of mass destruction dvd that gets the job done really well it's same set list i've got some killer photos by the way from that show because i was in the front row and i took a damn kodak disposable camera with me and i i got some amazing shots from it so I'll try to post them at some point here. But yeah, I was in the front row for this bad boy and it was one of the best shows I've ever seen. Uh, it's a good thing that I think this is a perfect album. So the full experience is just flawless for me. So yeah. And once again, justice for the John Bush records. Pulling three out of four classics with that band. Just phenomenal stuff. And it's a shame that this stuff is not represented on a live level anymore. And I know it probably wouldn't be the most lucrative thing for John Bush to go out and do. And I love me some Armored Saint, but I would love for him to maybe do like a night where he does like a full set of Anthrax songs and then has Armored Saint out there as well for the show. That would be a dream show for me. I think that might have to be his last tour because it'd probably ruin him. But yeah, man, he was so good out there playing with anthrax and if you're an anthrax fan i don't understand how you don't have this record or don't have it in your top anthrax records because nostalgia be damned man and at this point this is nostalgia for me this is a 20 year old record so come on it's old give it up for it i don't know but we've come for you all is perfect so I'm going to just talk in circles about how great this is, but let, let's get to the song. Why not? Let's, let's be done with this 2003 retrospective and move on to stuff from 2023. So to see us out, let's just keep it simple. I'm going with the album opener right here and an album full of great songs. It almost feels cliche to play the first song. And that's probably why I don't do it too often, but I'm going to do it here because this one could work as an opener and a closer, so let's go with it. Representing We've Come For You All, this is What Doesn't Die.
Ah, yes. I'm glad I went with that song. That song really has all the ingredients of a great, perfect John Bush era anthrax song. Even that mid-tempo solo section, and then it kicks back into the double time. Charlie's going crazy. Everybody's going crazy. It's awesome. So yes, that was What Doesn't Die, the opening track after the intro from We've Come For You All, as I have it here today, the number one album of 2003. One last word about this record. I know throughout this countdown and retrospective, I've been referencing the fact that at this point here in 2003, I was managing the CD warehouse over there in Hearst, Texas, off of Melbourne, and had a great time doing it. It was a fun time. Very proud to say that I leaned so hard on this album here, We've Come For You All, and it makes all the sense for it to be number one especially when you hear what I have to say here. I'm very proud of the fact that I had the sales statistics and actual proof to back this statement up. I sold more copies of that CD in that one particular store than Radiohead did that year. So, and they had a new album out. Did not make my countdown here. So yeah, I did that. I did that on my own. I put it in every damn hard rock and metal fans hand and I made them buy it. And I said, if you don't like it, I will buy it back off of you at full price. That's how much I believe you're going to love this album. And I didn't have one person come back and ask for their money back. So very proud of that. And that's another reason it makes it the number one album of 2003 because it was then and it is now. And that's important. So yes, I hope you've enjoyed our super spectacular retrospective here of 2003 if you can hear my voice and you're definitely a friend of mine and I appreciate you massively. Basically, as soon as I finish ripping this and putting it out there, I'm going right into 2023. I can't believe this. I got behind again. And last year it was just like, I was behind. I was just behind the whole time. This last year I was making good time. And then I got hit with COVID a little bit and it just really delayed everything, which sucks. But Still very much following everything that happened last year in 2023, and I plan on giving you a hell of a retrospective and uh, will not mail it in in any way. I may be the last word for 2023, but I'm going to be the best, guarantee you that. So once again, I hope you enjoyed this 2003 retrospective. Send in the feedback, man. Let me know. I'd love to know everything. Just write, write a huge letter like Bob Wing does. Thank you, Bob, by the way. You make my week every time you write something in. Just want to give you a shout out. It's long overdue. And everybody else, I know the friends out there of the show, I, I, I can pretty much tell who's listening at this point, and I massively appreciate you once again. So let's be having 2023 now. Until then, stay tuned for my better half, Nola, with the plugs, and followed by the best damn outro song in all the podcasting business. Take it away, Nola. We would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to the show today. You can reach us on Facebook or Twitter. We love getting messages and always do our best to respond. Every time you share our show, we give our cats Ruby and Ripley a treat. We are on Twitter at RockStrikes10 and the direct email is RockStrikes10 at gmail.com. When you search for us, the number 10 is always spelled out. If you would like to support our show financially, we do have Rock Strikes 10 shirts for sale. For $20, we will ship you out a high-quality, soft-as-heck, next-level branded shirt and a button. Send us an email or direct message for more details or to order. Please help us spread the word about this show and all of our other quality shows by listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing. 
Our official website is cnjradio.com. You can visit this site for all episodes of Rock Strikes 10 going all the way back to episode number one. While you're on cnjradio.com, check out some of these other quality shows. The Wrestling House Show, a pro wrestling podcast unlike any other. The Synaptic Empire Audio Transmissions, hosted by Randy Brown, a true alternative. The Last Theater, starring Chris, where cinema's trash is treated like treasure. And the I Am Vinyl podcast with Pete LaRussa and occasionally Joey. We also highly recommend that you check out our good friend Mark Striegel, who can now be heard exclusively on Sirius XM as part of Ozzy's Boneyard and Hair Nation. Last, but certainly not least, we would like to give an extra special thanks to the great Pete LaRussa and the band Spacebeard for the best outro song in the business. Go to facebook.com slash spacebeardband to purchase their music and make sure to tell them that Rock Strikes 10 sent ya. We hope you tune into the next show. Until then, have fun. Game show is brought to you by Christ. I can't find it. The hell with it.